and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we continue with our Bible studies on Wednesday night through the book of Galatians. So good to see Katrina and Trenton here tonight, uh, up visiting for a week or so. And uh, if you don't know, they were former members of this church a handful of years ago. And uh, they're down in Palmer area now, but uh, so good to see you, Katrina and Trenton. Always glad to have you back home. Just going to say it. Just throw it out there. Galatians chapter 3. And our text tonight is going to be verses 21 through 26, and it's a continuation from really uh, actually a few weeks ago. We've been in chapter 3 for a while here. And <clears throat> what we've been talking about in chapter 3 uh, is where Paul is, is now getting to the point where he's really starting to lay out the doctrine of justification by faith. And the first part of this letter to the churches of Galatia, Paul's defending his own apostleship. Uh, he is um, talking about the gospel that he has preached. It's, it wasn't his own. He got it from the Lord, uh, that it was true. And he was marveling that the Galatians were departing from and had been so soon removed from the true gospel unto another gospel. And the Judaizers those Jews that were trying to cause problems, who followed Paul from place to place uh, and trying to undo uh, all that Paul had done, they had come in and they had convinced these Galatian believers that it's not just uh, salvation is not just faith in Jesus Christ, but you also need to be circumcised or you also need to do the works of the law in order to be a true child of God. And, and so Paul in chapter 1 and verse 6 said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, not, not another one of the same kind. It's a false gospel. And so that's in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And then you get to chapter 3 and 4, and Paul really begins to refute what the Judaizers were teaching and laying out the doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians. And the title of the series of messages through chapter 3 is The Folly of the Galatians. And he says here, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And he goes into talk and he starts to ask a series of questions. To these believers, and he wants, he's, he's going to start asking logical questions. I want you to think about this. And, and this is the, pro, the point and the purpose of what Paul is getting at, to try to get them to think logically. And of course, he's, in chapter 3, he's teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's established that already, uh, both from the Word of God and from the Galatians' own personal experience, because he says in verse 2, this only would I learn of you. And he said, basically, I want to ask you a question. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you get saved? If this is true, that you have to add uh, works to faith, then how in the world did you get saved? Did you do any works? Or did you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And so... 
In verse 2, he makes this personal argument and reminds them that they had received the Holy Spirit of God by faith and not by the works of the law. And then in verses 8 through 14, he makes a scriptural argument. And he lists several Old Testament passages where Paul states that, that he also says that Christ has redeemed us from the law so that we might receive the promise of salvation and eternal life, which is through faith in Christ. Now, that was the whole point of that. But Paul's opponents, who were very much opposed to salvation by grace through faith, those Jewish teachers of the law, the Judaizers who had come with a different gospel, they who had preached that they were saved not by faith alone, but by faith plus keeping the law, they would argue this, and here's the argument that they make, that the law came around afterwards, and since the law came later, it changed the terms of salvation and added a new requirement to it. And so they would say, it's true that you must believe like Abraham believed. But the law came later, so now there's this second condition that has to be met as well. And so Paul answers that argument in our text and the, in chapter 3. And he gives this logical argument. First of all, from the perspective of human covenants and contracts to show that promises can't be broken when a legal contract is made. And he says, if men will keep their word in business arrangements and nothing can legally change that agreement on a human level, how much more will God keep his word? So I want you to look at verse 15 of chapter 3, and we'll get to our text verses in a second here. In verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. And so he says, even in the human world, if men can keep <coughs> excuse me, business arrangements and nothing can legally change that, then certainly God's going to keep his word. And the argument that Paul makes from this logical perspective is the law cannot come along and change the promise of God. Notice what he says in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words... When it comes to men's covenants with other men, Paul says, once two parties confirm an agreement, a third party can't come along years later and change that agreement. The only persons who can change it, uh, the original agreement, are the people who made it. And to add anything to it or to take anything away from it would be illegal. And he says, if this is true among sinful men, how much more does this apply with an holy, unchangeable God? Paul's point is simply that the promise of justification through faith made to Abraham is a permanent promise. If a human contract or covenant can't be added to or voided after two parties agree upon it, then certainly nothing can change or cancel God's promise to Abraham. The law and the keeping of the law cannot change the promise of God by faith. 
Salvation does not come by believing and doing the works of the law. It's by faith alone. The second argument that Paul made is in verses 19 and 20, that the law is not greater than the promise. So the law can't change the promise of God, but secondly, the law is not greater than the promise of God. Verse 19, he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? Or why was it given? And he answers the question. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And Paul points out here that the law is totally inferior to the covenant of promise in two ways. First of all, the law was temporary. He says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. The seed is Christ. And he says, so the law is temporary in nature. It was something that was added until the seed. And it's obvious that a temporary law cannot be greater than a permanent covenant. And when you read God's covenant with Abraham, you don't find any ifs. You don't find anything like that in the words of God. Nothing was conditional with the promise to Abraham. It was all of God's grace, and God gave it to Abraham. When two men make a covenant, it's you do your part, and I'll do my part. And when we both do our part, we have an agreement. But that's not what it was with God. God didn't make a, uh, Abraham didn't make a covenant with God. Abraham, you do your part, I'll do mine, and, we're, and you'll have salvation. God gave it to him by promise. The unchangeable God who cannot lie made a promise. The promise is based on his own character. When you read about the blessings of that covenant, there are no ifs. It's unconditional. It was all of grace. But when you read about the blessings that would come by the law, and there were blessings that would come by the law, they were all dependent upon meeting certain conditions. If you do this, God says, then I'll do that. That's not the covenant of promise regarding salvation. Amen? The second reason why the law is not greater than the promise is because the law required a mediator. In verse 20, now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. In verse 19, he, it's the, he says here that it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. According to verse 19, when God gave the law to Israel, He did it by means of angels through the mediation of Moses. And what Paul is saying is that Israel received the law third hand. Excuse me. From God to angels to Moses. But when God made His covenant with Abraham, He did it very personally, without a mediator. And a mediator was one who would stand between two parties and help them to agree. So you have this guy over here and this guy over here, they're making this covenant, and a mediator would stand between the two parties to help them to agree. But there was no need for a mediator. There was no need for a go-between because the unchangeable God made the promise. Abraham wasn't a part of it, but he was a benefactor of it. And the law was temporary, and it required a mediator. The covenant of promise was permanent, and no mediator required. And so there can only be one conclusion. Paul says the covenant was greater than the law. And that's why Paul says, I'm dumbfounded. I'm shocked. I marvel. 
that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Something that actually turns back into bondage, he'll say later on. So there's another argument, and we'll get to our text verses now, in verses 21 through 26. And the third argument is this, the law is not contrary to the promise. Now notice in verse 21, there's another question that's being asked here, and you can almost hear the Judaizers yelling this question to Paul. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that, faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The argument that Paul is going to make here is that the law is not contrary to the promise. Now, you would assume and you would, you would think, and, and it is true in one sense, that law and grace are opposed to each other. They are in the sense of how you obtain salvation. But in the purpose of God, the law and grace actually work together to bring about the purposes of God. And I'll explain that to you in just a little bit. Let's pray first and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us tonight to understand your word. And sometimes there are passages of scripture that can seem to be a bit confusing or the wording of it is such that we have a hard time understanding it, but I'm thankful that we have your Spirit to direct us and reveal to us truth and open our understanding and illuminate our eyes, our spiritual eyes that we might see. And, and Lord, I pray that tonight as we walk through these verses that you'd again help us to appreciate the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that it's all of grace, it's through faith, it's not of works, and Lord, that we are truly benefactors of the perfect plan of God for the redemption of mankind. And we have no part in it other than to receive it. And we have no part in keeping it. And we're thankful, Lord, that it's not up to me. And I pray again that you'd help us tonight and to gain another fuller and deeper appreciation of what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. When you look at verse 19... There's another question that is asked. The question is, wherefore then serveth the law? In other words, why was the law given? In verse 21, is the law against the promises of God? And you can almost hear these Judaizers shouting out these questions. Basically, okay, is God contradicting himself then, Paul? Does, does God's right hand not know what his left hand is doing? And so on. And so Paul replies to this question, and as he does, he reveals some very deep insight into the purposes of God. And what he teaches here is that the law is not contrary to the promise of God, but rather it cooperates with the promise in fulfilling the purpose of God. And Paul explains exactly why the law was given and how its intent is to reveal the holiness of God and to drive people to Jesus Christ. 
First of all, in verse 21, Paul states that the law was not given to provide life. He says in verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. He says the law wasn't given to provide life, and certainly the law of Moses regulated the lives of the Jewish people, but it did not and could not provide spiritual life for them. Now, remember the Jews thought because they were Jewish, because of their heritage, their lineage, that they were special and they were the children of God simply by by right of heritage. And then the law was given to them, and so they thought they were even more special, that the the keeping and the doing of the law brought them uh, peace with God. And the law regulated their lives, certainly, but it couldn't provide spiritual life. And Paul says if life and righteousness could come through the law, then Jesus Christ would never have died on the cross. In chapter 2, in verse 21, Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He said Jesus died for no reason if you could have life through the law. But the fact is Jesus did die. Therefore, the law could never give the sinner life and righteousness. The problem was that it was the worship of the law that led Israel into a self-righteous religion of works that resulted in them missing the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Romans 9 and verse 30 says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And the point that Paul was making is, their worship of the law caused them to miss the fact that Jesus Christ was the fulfilling of the law and that He was their Messiah. And so Paul says the law wasn't given to give life. But he says, secondly, in verse 22, the law was given to reveal sin. He says in verse 22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. It's here that we see the way that the law and grace cooperate together in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus Christ. The law shows the sinner his guilt. Grace shows him the forgiveness that he can have in Jesus Christ. Romans 7, 12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it is just, and it is good. But we are unholy, and unjust, and bad. The law doesn't make us sinners. It simply reveals to us that we already are sinners. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You understand that? It is by the law that we understand what sin is. 
The law is a mirror that helps us to see our dirty faces, if you will. It shows us that we have dirt on our face and we need to wash our face. But you know what? We don't wash our face with the mirror. The mirror shows us that we're dirty, but we don't wash our face with the mirror. It's grace that provides the cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the application is this. There is a lawful use of the law, and there's an unlawful use of the law. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. The, the lawful use of the law is to reveal sin and cause men to see their need of a Savior. The unlawful use is to try to achieve salvation by the keeping of the law, which is impossible to do anyway. So the application is sort of like this. When people say that they're good people by trying to keep the Ten Commandments, you know, you ask that question to people, do you think you're a good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. What makes you think that? Well, you know, I try to do good. I try to keep the Ten Commandments and so on. Well, what they are doing is revealing their ignorance of the true meaning of the law. The true meaning of the law concludes all of us are under sin, Jew and Gentile alike, because we can't possibly keep it. But since all are under sin, Paul says, then all may be saved by grace. Now look at it again in verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Because all are under sin, then all can be saved by grace through faith. God doesn't have two ways of salvation. There's only been one. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Paul says that the law was given to prepare the way for Christ. So it wasn't given that it could give life. It was given to reveal sin. And thirdly, the law was given to prepare the way for Christ. Look at verse 23. But before faith came... We were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that, faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Here Paul uses an illustration that would have been familiar to all of his readers. And the illustration was the child guardian. That's what he's talking about here. In many of the Roman or Greek households, they would have oftentimes very well-educated slaves. And those well-educated slaves were the ones who were responsible to take the children to and from school and to watch over them throughout the day. Sometimes those well-educated slaves would teach the kids some things. But the primary responsibility was to protect them, to prohibit them from doing things that would be harmful to them, and even sometimes uh, give some discipline to the kids. Their job was to take them, to care for them, and take them to and from school and to watch them. That is what Paul is meaning by the word schoolmaster. The law was our schoolmaster. The schoolmaster was not the school teacher. The word itself, schoolmaster, comes from the Greek word pedagogos, and it simply means child conductor. 
By using that illustration, Paul was showing what the purpose of the law was, to conduct us to Christ. Also, Paul was pointing out in these verses that the the work of the guardian, that that well-educated slave whose responsibility it was to care for and take those kids to and from school, the work of the guardian was also preparation for the child's maturity. Once that child would come of age, he no longer needed a guardian. In the same way, the law was a preparation for the nation of Israel until the coming of the promised seed, which was Jesus Christ. In verse 23, he says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up until the faith which should afterwards be revealed. In verse, uh, and here he's talking about the ultimate goal in God's plan was the coming of Christ. Before faith or Christ came, the nation was imprisoned by the law. The law separated Israel from Gentile nations. It governed every aspect of their life. And during the centuries of Jewish history, the law was always pointing to and preparing for the coming of the promised one, which is Jesus Christ. Then in verse 25, But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. After Christ has come, we're no longer under the law. The demands of the law should have reminded the people that they needed a Savior. All the types, all the symbols in the law were pictures of the coming Messiah. All the holy days, all of them were fulfilled in Christ. And it should have been so easy for the nation of Israel to see that all of these things that we know in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in this one person. But because they worshipped the law, it caused them to miss the promised one. A good example of that purpose of the law is the account of the rich young ruler. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and look at verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lists off. So this young guy comes to Jesus and he says, What do I need to do? to have eternal life. And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He's like, well, which one? 
And so Jesus lifts off all the commandments, but he doesn't talk about the last one, thou shalt not covet. And so he goes through and the rich young ruler says, I've done all of these things from my youth up. What do I lack yet? And then Jesus mentions the last of the commandments, thou shalt not covet. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Well, this young man had everything anybody could ever desire. But he wasn't satisfied. That's the reason why he came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do? He had tried to keep the commandments all of his life, but there was still something missing. The point is, it was these commandments that brought him to Jesus Christ, and Jesus showed him through the law that he cannot and could not keep all the law. And he wasn't good. And that is one of the purposes of the law, to create in a lost sinner a sense of guilt and a sense of need. It's why when we're witnessing to somebody or we're we're trying to to reach them for Christ, that it's a good idea to point them to the law and ask them questions. You know, you think you're a good person and use the good person test. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. What do you call somebody who tells lies? A liar. Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Well, yeah. What do you call somebody who who steals? Well, a thief. And you can tell them by your own admission, you're a liar and you're a thief. Have you ever thought about things that are immoral that you shouldn't think about? Well, sure. Who hasn't done that? Well, what does Jesus say about that? Even the thoughts of your mind condemn you because your heart is wicked and deceitful. And to point them to the law, to show them, listen, that you already are a sinner, you're already condemned before God, and the law can be used to to bring about this, this sense of guilt in the soul that drives them to the one who can actually do something about it. And so Paul is showing the purpose of the law to create in a lost sinner a sense of guilt and need. And when you get back to the rich young ruler, the sad part is that this young man wasn't honest as he looked into the mirror of the law. That last commandment, thou shalt not covet, it escaped him. And the Bible says he went away without eternal life. But Paul is showing that the law is inferior to the promise of God by faith. But in this case, with the rich young ruler, the law had performed its purpose. The law had done its job. And in reality, today, the law has fulfilled its purpose. It's done its job. The Savior has come, and the guardian is no longer needed. You understand that? I don't know if I cause more confusion by that. I'm trying to get to the point that that Paul says here, The law was our schoolmaster. It was, for a time, it was the guardian to bring us to Christ. And when Christ came, after that faith came, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. I think about the fact that it's tragic that the nation of Israel didn't recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah when He was standing right in front of them. It was not God's intent that the nation continue to practice the 
faith of their fathers, if you will, after Jesus Christ came. There was no need for a temple, no need for their holy days, no need for an altar, no need for the priesthood, no need for the sacrifices, no need for a king, because all of those things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so that any man, whether Jew or Gentile, who trusts in Christ would become a child of God. That's why Paul says in our text in verse 26, Notice the the last statement that Paul makes there in verse 26. He says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All who are of faith are of the promise. And so the law cannot change the promise, Paul says. It can't come around years later and undo the promise that God already made. The law is not greater than the promise. That's something that was temporary. The promise was permanent, and the law is not contrary to the promise. They actually work together to bring the sinner to the Savior, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul lays out the doctrine of justification by faith very clearly, very logically, in a way that they would clearly understand it uh, to refute the teaching of the Judaizers and get the Galatian believers to think again about how it was that they were saved, not by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to go on and give a couple more examples. And this, the last few verses of chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, really tie into chapter 4. And so we're going to start taking those together where Paul gives another illustration of us becoming a son of God and how, and how the blessings we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm looking forward to that study as well. There's some really great truth here. And sometimes it can be, you know, when we're talking about doctrine, sometimes it's like, oh, I know this, or, oh, I've heard that before, or, oh, whatever. But we ought to receive it. And we ought to, uh, again, appreciate what we have in Jesus Christ and learn from it so that then we can share our faith with other people. Amen? There's a lot of people who have a works-based salvation. A lot of people who call themselves Christians who think that they're right with God because of some things that they do. And what they need is a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation is by grace through faith alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. pray that it be instructive to us tonight. The Word of God is always profitable for doctrine and for instruction, and for correction, for reproof, for all the things that we need as children of God, that we might be truly furnished unto all good works. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd cause us to embrace and to receive and to pay attention and engage with your word. And, and Lord, that we would be grounded in faith and grounded in truth, unmovable in this world that is ever-changing, amongst religion and even, quote, Christianity, that people are carried about with every wind of doctrine. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stand fast, Lord, because we are convicted of what truth is. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.